Um, so, good morning. It's nice to see you all. Right off the bat, there should be something very obvious to you all. Um, I am not Scott Mahoney. So, yeah. <laughs> Doug, sit down. Um, if you feel you need your money back, pass the gates in the back, so feel free to go back to them. Um, so, uh, Scott and Angela and Drew are still traveling today. So, um, I am hoping to just have a conversation together that sets a little bit of the tone for the class. Um, and then any of the points that Scott really wants to drill in when he's back next week, he will make sure to go through. So um, I am thankful for an opportunity to serve with you all. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for it. Um, a number of you know me, um, but many of you don't. Uh, I am going to ask a couple things, if that's okay. Uh, I'm going to ask that when you um, jump in, question, conversation, which you're going to find I like to do a lot, um, just say your name. Um, even if you've been here for years, there may be someone who hasn't been, so if you don't mind, it's a nice way um, to get to know people. And then on the back side of that, um, it's nice to worship together. It's nice to worship together on a Sunday morning. Um, worship is not just about at the 11 o'clock hour, it's all the time we have together on the Lord's Day. And so as we're doing that, part of worship is um, loving your brother and sister, and so just try to get to know each other as well. Um, as we go through and have conversations uh, and whatnot, um, just, just remember, right, the, the point of us being here is to worship the Lord. Um, it's to honor our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, it's to love one another. And we can do all that uh, in truth, and in deed, and in action. And so I just, you know, I don't want it to be just a class of learning that we then move on from, right? It's, it's about relationship together. And really, that's, that's very much um, what uh, I think Scott would like to do. Really, that sets a lot of the tone for what we want to do this morning. Um, we don't want the idea of apologetics, the idea of uh, defense of the Christian faith, to be something that is academic and removed from our lives. That's, in fact, not what it is. It is about uh, a holistic Christian life that is so clear that the truth that we have is to be shared with people, but also to be kept in our hearts and something that we are fixed to and anchored to, if that makes sense. Um, and so really, that's going to be what a lot of this morning is. Um, but before we do that, um, I'd like to go to the Lord um, and ask for um, just his help and to cover our conversation, um, and then we'll start chatting a little. So, um, I like to have a conversation. But what I'd like to know from the class a little bit is why are, just maybe a few people, why are you interested in a study of apologetics? If anyone is willing to sort of jump in. And your name, please. Yes. Okay, thank you. It's Abigail. Hi, Abigail. I'm to have an answer whenever someone asks, um, not to just babble around, and I don't know, but to be ready to answer whoever asks. That's great. That's great. Yeah. The biggest reason for me is because we live in a pluralistic society, especially when it comes to relativism, everybody thinks that there's all these multiple ways to God. And and most of the time in the media, you know, on the news, they criticize Christians as being narrow-minded mm-hmm. okay, because they think their way is the way to God. Mm-hmm. And apologetics helps to clear the way and show that all these different systems, since they're so total opposite to each other, how can two contrary systems lead to the same God? And there's a bunch of other reasons that come up. And one of the main ones, one of the best apologies I've seen, is to come from the Bible, <coughs> Paul himself. And so that puts a whole light on it. It even points to what Christians should do, as Peter said, have a defense for them. The word of God and everything. So, and that really got me talking because it got me um, taking apologetics because I was leaning more towards Islam. I was leaning more towards it. And um, that right there shot it all down as you go through it and everything. The reason it makes God having a son and the Bible being the word of God and a bunch of other things and everything. That's great. Thank you, and I know your name's Austin, so just so, just so people know. Yeah, Austin. Um, so, right, as, as we hear some of those answers, there is this idea of, when asked, having the ability to answer, if it's okay to rephrase a little, Abigail, 
in sort of a, in a coherent way, in a systematic way, in a way that makes sense, it's logical. The expectation there is that we have that ability and that that truth is available to us, and that's incredibly correct, right? It's that scripture itself and the truth that God has laid out in creation and through his word is logical, it is rational, it is understandable. It is by revelation through him, we don't have to mistake those two things, right? And yet, it is something that can be understood and can be thought through. And then, if I, if I can rephrase a little, it's this idea of amidst the noise, if you will, of all the different ideas and whatnot, a clarity on why Christianity, why who Jesus Christ is, why everything that is revealed to us in the word of God, again, is clear, is understandable, but also that we can understand life through it, right? And so that's incredibly helpful because it also sets the tone, which I, for the, for, well, really what I hope Scott is going to do with the class, but also what, what he and I have at least talked about for a long time and the idea for this morning, <clears throat> that when we think about apologetics, um, I would like us to have a consideration of it as a, a truth, not with just one audience in mind, but a truth for all audiences. And what I mean by that is, it is as much for someone that doesn't know the Lord as it is for someone who knows the Lord, right. right? What is the thing that you can do? You can anchor yourself in the word of God, in the truth of God. And so there are times where as we are studying or we are affirming things and we see life around us through it, that we ourselves as believers need to be encouraged or we have the ability to speak into someone else's life. Truth. Question is, when we say truth, or we say the, what we've been talking about as um, uh, apologists is that idea of a defense, do we just mean it academically? And right off the bat, we know the answer is no, right? Like, we can say we don't mean it academically. So, um, a, just a couple of logistics. Um, if you all um, checked or not, if you're signed up on the Hope Book class, you would know that Scott uploaded the notes for this morning, which is actually what I'm going to work through. So those are available. If you have them, great. I'm, I'm going to systematically go through them. I, I have one, one, um, one aside that I'm going to bring in. I don't know if this is, this is going to be okay. It's Chronicles of Narnia. There's going to be a reference in here. It's going to be specific. Um, but we're going to work through the notes. So just as a reference, if you guys want, you can follow along here because some of the references are there and that might be helpful. Um, if you don't have it, don't worry. You can always go back to it. So um, one of the things that we start with is really just sort of a definition of apologetics. And Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology, um, which is a really good reference for a lot of, um, for a lot of topics, um, defines it as providing a defense of the truthfulness of the Christian faith for the purpose of convincing unbelievers. And that's a traditional definition of apologetics. Just to sort of, to use Scott's notes here a little, it's a good definition and it builds itself out of 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 17, which is, you know, in the room, it's kind of what we're referencing a little bit. And we're actually going to go there in a minute. Um, we want to see out of this verse, right? So this is our... Our, if, if it's okay for me to call it, it's our anchor point for apologetics. We want to see a little bit of what the point Peter is making there as we define our apologetics. And then we're going to sort of interact with it. So what I'd like you all to do is actually to turn there now, um, and we are going to read it together. Um, I, I'm actually going to start for, I'm going to start just for a little bit of context in 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter goes on and he connects it directly to Christ's suffering, right? And 
we understand as we're going through this that a lot of a lot of Peter's intention in this letter is fixing yourself to hope in the midst of suffering. Um, I in across the room, um, I probably only know people maybe like a third of the room. Okay, so there's a lot of faces I don't know. But even of those, the ability for me to know exactly what it is that you might be going through um, is even less, right? And the things that I do know that you might be going through relative to their impact on you, I might know even less. Do you understand? And yet, what I can tell you is that Peter's encouragement, Peter's, Peter telling us to fix ourselves onto the hope of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering, and then the ability to have a reason for that hope is true for all of us, and particularly true for the people that he's writing to, right? For the audience here. So when we say that we should be ready to give a defense, the context there is to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But why is that striking? Why is what he is saying striking in this passage in particular? My wife tells me sometimes my questions are vague, and so if they're a little vague, just let me know, and then I will sort of like course correct a little. Um, my name is Mark. I'm, I'm guessing because there's a hope that they see that's in you. Yeah, and, and, and why is that? I mean, yes. yes. And what's the striking thing about that? that? That your life is different, radically different from what they see in their day-to-day that's right. And that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of enduring something, there is, you are marked by a hope, right? You're marked by something that in the midst of it, it would make someone want to come up to you and be like, why are you like this? What, like, what, what is this about you? Um, if we go on through the notes a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm Brian. Um, go on with what Mark is saying here. Um, a lot of times we go through formalities. Even as believers, we know that God is taking care of us, you know, through suffering. We know God is directing us and teaching us through his word. And I think the difficulty is how do we tell others? They ask us for the hope that lies within us. But do we really know what we believe? And so we need to know so we can relay it to others. And I think that gets like, there's like a block. And I think it has a lot to do with it. I think that's just an I think that's an excellent point, right? That's like incredibly helpful because it it's a, <laughs> because it sets up this idea that um, it, it's it's both. It's about this hope that you have and it's this ability to convey that information, right? Not not as just information, but the ability to be like, yeah, this is why I have this hope, because we want God glorified. We want it all pointed to him. We want him honored in it. And guess what? We want those people to know the Lord, right? At the heart of it. Even the people that cause the suffering to us. We, we, I want you to know who the Lord is because you need the Lord just as much as I do. That verse um, right before the, um, or it's the same verse with the line right before it is, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. An idea of honoring the Christ, uh, honoring Christ the Lord as holy, is this picture of giving weight to Him who is set apart more than anyone else. It is this idea of, but it's Christ first, and then everything flows out of that. And that's the direct focus and the direct point of our hope, right? That that's where it comes from. It all comes from the Lord Jesus. So. As we interact then with apologetics, what we don't want to do then is set it up as this idea about its mental exercises and arguments removed from our lives. Peter Kreeft is a fairly well-known apologist, if you guys might have like, read some of his stuff. Um, so here's a quote. Christian apologetics is weak today because it usually takes one of two incomplete forms. If it is orthodox in content, it's usually naively impersonal in form. Well, if it's psychologically deep, it is usually theologically shallow. You see that? It cannot be impersonal, but accurate in orthodox and in theology. But it also... Oh, I'm looking at Doug, and I got mixed up. Did I say it right? I said it right, yeah. And it cannot be personal and psychological and just about my feelings 
and then theologically weak. Because we anchor ourselves to the truth, but the truth permeates through our lives. Does that make sense? Going back through um, Scott's little, Kreese's argument is that if our apologetics is consistent with God's word, it's an assembly of facts that doesn't have an effect on our own lives. It is an assembly of facts that doesn't have an effect on our own lives. It is not a growing persuasion that we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and live lives of increasing holiness and godliness. Are you saying, oh, I'm sorry, my name is Doug. Hi, Doug. Um, are you saying that God's word should impact our lives so it like bears fruit in our apologetics? Yes. And that your apologetics cannot be removed from the fruit in your life. <coughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. What I'm not saying is that your life undoes, undoes God's truth. It does not. God's truth stands eternal. What I'm saying is the impactfulness of apologetics, the impactfulness of your ability to share God's truth is as it permeates through your life as you walk with the Lord. It is not a removed thing. And really that's a lot of what, um, a, a, and a little bit sort of what we want to interact with, that it's not about separate things circling in your lives. It's about one truth. It's about one, one way of walking the Christian life. Okay? It's not about Sunday morning versus like Wednesday in the office. It's about, well, no, the truth of Sunday morning is the truth of Wednesday morning in the office. It's just that I need to make sure that my eyes are fixed on Jesus in both times. Does that make sense? And so the heart of apologetics is in that way. And that is, that's incredibly relieving to my heart because, you know, I've always been kind of this mindset of to, if I'm going to be a good apologist, I've got to memorize all the logical syllogisms that go along with proving that uh, stuff about the Bible. And what you're telling me is, is I just got to be in the word and live my life. Am I, am I oversimplifying kind of what you just said? And I'm not trying to be devil's advocate. I am really trying to say there's a measure of peace in my heart when you describe it the way that you just described it. I want you to consider that it is very true. Of it. What you said is very true. But it doesn't undo that we can learn more the rational arguments that still play themselves out in that same way of trusting God's truth in the peace in your heart. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I guess what I'd want to be careful of is I don't need to set those up as against each other. Yeah. I would set those up as together. That makes sense. Yeah. That as you study God's word, as we go through a systematic, logical flow of all these different interactions, um, God's truth continues to reign, and you'll learn more, like, is the hope, and yet you'll still walk in peace, trusting in God's word. Does that make sense? At the end of the day, you will worship more, find yourself in the word more, and, and realize that his truth is, is everywhere. I think that's the way that I would look at it. So I, maybe I put a little more of the pressure back on, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mark? Yeah. I was just thinking, if you, if you had a job, and you were great at your job, and they're like, man, he, he really does an excellent job, we're going to actually let him lead a presentation so if you're reading a presentation, you would, you would dot every I, you cross every P, you would be so invested. I mean, it's for your, for your own life, you want to you perform well, but, you know, just think how much more worthy is the board of any yeah. presentation to work, you know, we yeah. would just be way more. Mm -hmm. And we should be, it's just a reflection of our hearts and whether or not Yeah. So if we continue on a little, the truth of God, his creation works in word, uh, transform lives, and that transformation is so supported by reality, truth, and reasoning about reality that we have a strong message to share with others. It is utterly consistent. God's truth is utterly consistent in our lives and all the way around. Um, if you see me reading, it's from Scott's notes, so don't worry, you'll have a copy of it, just if that's helpful for you all. Um, and also, we're recording this. Um, Francis Schaeffer um, was another apologist um, who talked a lot about his own interactions with life and wh what he described as his, <laughs> as his um, it, it's spirituality and the fact that they are not dichotomous. They're not against each other. They're not separate. Um, 
So this quote from one of his, it's a a really excellent book, True Spirituality. As I thought of my reasons for being a Christian, I saw again that there were totally sufficient reasons to know that the infinite personal God does exist and that Christianity is true. And going further, I saw something else which which made a profound difference in my life. I searched through what the Bible said concerning reality as a Christian. Gradually, I saw that with all the teaching I had received after as a Christian, I had heard little about what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work for Christ, for Christ, for our present lives. He went on and he founded a, like a pretty well-known sort of like, um, it's, it's called Library, it's like a discussion center for like skeptics and whatnot. And it's a place where he felt um, both believers and unbelievers could interact with God's truth. So, I mean, Doug, just, just thinking about it a little bit more, just as, a, as I'm processing, I think at the heart of it, what it really is, is that when we are in God's word, we don't have to think of it as separate. We can think of it as this idea of um, it constantly revealing the truth around us. Um, so in small group, we have been, don't worry, Minji, I'm not going to call on you. Um, I mean, I might, we'll see. I in small group, we have been working through the Gospel of Luke, and we very recently went through um, the feeding of the five thousand, where the Lord, um, where the Lord, took the bread and took the fish, and gave it to the disciples, who spread it out and fed at least five thousand men. But it was it was counted more because the men and women weren't weren't counted. And as they were going through, it was and and you find it all the way through Luke. The Lord is always preaching the kingdom of God, and he is healing, curing people, and then you have this miracle there, and, and it's always together. And when you pay attention to it as you go through the Gospel of Luke, what you realize is that it is utterly consistent that whenever the Lord was preaching the kingdom of God, and he was doing these miracles, and he was revealing who he was, there was no segmentation of the truth or of reality. Does that make sense? There was no, now it's a time for a miracle, now it's a time for who Jesus is, now it's a time for truth. It was always together. And that concept is very important for us. Can you say that again? And there was no separation between when the Lord was doing miracles, preaching the kingdom of God, revealing who he was as if they are separate segments of truth. They were always together and always uniform. And that's our picture for apologetics, and that's our picture for truth, is that they are not separate. They are not, I interact with this, I interact with this. It's that God's truth, God's truth goes all the way through our lives. The reason that's important is that as we go through a study like this, it's not about... Again, mental exercises and arguments separated from the truth of God and separated from your life and separated from the impact that it has for you. So when you have a very well-reasoned argument for why the truth of God has something to say about creation, has something to say about um, the interaction between men and women or what marriage looks like, or the reason that there makes a very logical sense as to why Islam is not a, um, not a pursuit of God as opposed to who the Lord is. In each of those examples, it's not a separate truth from what is impacting you and the encouragement to you. Let me say that again. It's this idea that when I think about creation and I think about God's impact on creation, the God who holds all of creation together is the one who calls me by my name and is the one who answers my prayers. So if you think about apologetics and you want to think about it in a removed way, you can go through and have a systematic understanding of why (coughs) creation and God's utter command of it is logical and makes sense, and and you can talk through all those things, but you must not separate that from he's the God who answers your prayers when you're struggling at night 
and thinking about what am I going to do tomorrow? When you are scared about this thing, when you are parenting, when you are in your marriage, when you are yada, yada, yada. They are not two separate truths. They're the same truth. Does that make sense? So in the study of apologetics, for believers, let it be a good, orderly understanding of how to have a defense of the truth of Christianity. Let it be a time of worship for you, a time for you to fix your anchor points in the truth of God. Does that sort of make sense? Let me pause there for a second. My name is Ayo. Um, I wanted to add, I'm just piecing together what you're saying about being able to reflect or vocalize God's truth in every situation. So I remember I'm going through some trials right now, and Brian called me, my small group head, and he says, Ayo, checked everything, I said, do you realize that God is sovereign? in all this situation. That was an anchor point for me. So when my sister called and said, I just wonder how you're still so bubbly and everything is just challenges and there's a lot this month of February. And I was like, I just realized that God is sovereign. I said before, I was very anxious, everything. And but I've come to have a peace that in all, God is there. And I remembered what Pastor Gabe told us in my counseling that um, God brings you trial so that you can comfort other people and learn from it. Apart from that, he also said that um, there's nothing new to man, but in every situation, it's given us a way of escape. Yes. So I transferred, like you're saying, the truth and the facts of my challenges and peace into God's word and his sovereignty. So that's a way we could always put together the trial, the challenges, the creation, God's truth. I think that really speaks well to um, in, in 1 Peter 3.15. It's that in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy. Right? It's that idea of, Lord, you first. Lord, you first. One of the things that, um, one of the things that Scott had put in the notes, um, I, I'll just leave this as a reference here. Um, is this idea of secularism. Why does it matter? It matters because secularism, the idea that there are areas of our lives that are not regarded as religious, spiritual, or sacred, and its bedfellow, naturalism, the belief that all phenomena are covered by the laws of science and all that are theological, so um, like the end purpose of something, for, like the purpose of the design that something exists for, that those arguments or explanations are without value. That they, it's this idea that they have invaded our minds, so this is Scott writing, but it's invaded the minds of believers so subtly and so completely that we are losing the witness of a life transformed by the truth of God. That's the base of our apologetic, our defense of the truth to an unbelieving world. So let me sort of like rephrase it a little bit, right? It's this idea that there are two realms of interaction or of thought. One that might be religious, or that might be the Christian life, and then one that occupies all the other areas in life. Anything that's not religious, spiritual, or sacred. An idea of a separation. I don't think as believers we tend in this area that much. I don't know that I would say that I think we completely put ourselves into a Sunday morning Christian only. We might. That's more for you to interact with on your own heart. Does that make sense? I think this is the area we live in more. Where we let some areas, and, may, and maybe just, just for a moment of grace, if that's okay, I'll put more overlap. Okay? Yeah, Lord, you are good to me. Lord, you do say you will take care of me. Yes, I trust that you will take care of me in this area because you hold all things in your arms. But Lord, really, in that area, are you sure that you're going to be faithful? Because this is really complicated, right? You see that, that the problem with this idea is that it separates out God's truth from the rest of reality. I think... This is where we live. 
God's truth has something to say for every facet of life. And that's the heart of apologetics, right? That's the heart of, if you go through any area of life, whether it's logic, whether it's the beginning of reality, whether it's the idea of pluralism, whether it's the idea of creation, whether it's the idea of um, ethics, in any of those, sorry, whether it's the idea of reliable history, reliable witness, can we know that he was there? Can we know that Jesus is true? In all of those areas, we can have good arguments, but understand that it's not just about the good argument. It's about the fact that it's because there's only one truth, that it's all there. Does that sort of make sense? Does it make sense, this idea of, of being careful to not set up things as a false dichotomy? Oh, Lord, you have nothing to say about science. Science is pretty complicated, right? That's not... that. You couldn't have a truth that, that sort of speaks into that area. So Wayne Grudem has a definition of secularism. It's this idea of any theory or of the origin of the universe that does not see an infinite personal God as responsible for creating the universe by intelligent design. A worldview that assumes that God will never answer prayer or seldom, if ever. I botched that quote a little. An unwillingness to admit the existence of demons. The belief that New Testament faith is something made stronger by ignorance or by believing against evidence. Do you know what Grudem threw in there, by the way? He threw in there this idea that spiritual reality and physical reality are not separated. Right? It's the idea not that only... Does God's truth speak to every area of our lives? And that we can have a walk through that. But also, that it's a spiritual world and a physical world that we live in. Does that make sense? You cannot... Yes. Go ahead. That's a great, that's a great point, right? I mean, it's a great point, and I, and I think you know that speaks to something that also in that in that first in that first Peter reference that um, he references the idea of um, do it with gentleness and respect, right? I do not know what the Lord is doing in your life. I know that there is God's truth. I know that God may be working your life some way, but I certainly will interact with you with grace, because I want you to know God's truth, right? I want to love you, and by loving you, I want to share the truth. I want to share God's truth logically, but with hope, right? Not backing down from truth, and yet with grace, right? In each of those things, we don't have to separate them. But it, it's, it's such a great point, because you, you don't know. I, I will, and not that I would sort of take time with this, but my own life becoming a believer was... As a young man, uh, I was like uh, 19 or 20, and I was in a men's Bible study that my brother had invited me to because I was going through a horrible time. And I went, and these men, four or five of them, probably in their 30s to 50s, let me ask all sorts of questions for an entire summer. And I was really annoying, right? And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an argumentative person, and I... But they were incredibly kind and gracious, but they answered my questions. And they loved me. And they had me in their homes. And they talked and they talked. And by that end, I was the Lord's. Right? That's how he was doing his work. He was doing his work. And, and I could not have told you six months ahead of that time, and that's 20 years ago this year, I could not have told you six months ahead of that that I would have done it. And I, I promise I could have told you um, that, um, that I thought I was right. I mean, sure, I was also 20, and, like, you always think you're right, right? Like, but 
It, it did not, all of their discussions with me, with me were not separate from their lives either, or separate from the grace that they were showing me. So, Scott has a modified definition, um, a modified definition then of apologetics. The rational defense to the unbeliever and to our own skepticism and secularism of our total confidence in the sovereign God leading us to a life increasingly transformed into that which Christ demonstrated as a result of the truth revealed through his creation, his word, and his work through the Spirit. I'm sure you guys got that right away, right? You wrote it right down here. Said more simply, apologetics is passionate truth-seeking. First in and for our own lives, and then so that we can give an answer to others that still do not know and believe the truth. I, I, I think we have lots and lots of incredibly intelligent people who are able to rationally share the truth of God. I think that is a true statement. And I think what we would desire for each of our own hearts is a rational defense to our own hearts first and then to others that's fixed on worshiping God and loving people. Does that make sense? And in that order, I will always say, worship and love God first and then love people. So you don't swap it, right? Yeah. When you swap it, you are more willing to bend. And I don't mean bend like be gracious or be kind or be patient or not try to win arguments because it's really not about winning arguments. What I mean is God's truth is fixed. And, and we hold to that, and that's our encouragement. We hold to Christ. We hold to truth. But we can be incredibly loving to people by sharing these things. Does that make sense? So... Um, Scott has some examples in his um, text where he walks through a, um, a few different examples of some of the secularism or like false dichotomy that we set through as believers. I'm not going to go through each of these examples, and there's a, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, we don't entirely have the time, but the second is that a couple of these examples are out of studies actually that Scott did. And so because of my own lack of familiarity with that content, I'm, I'm not going to walk through it, but I'm going to ask Scott if he wants to double back and go through it. That's a little bit of the nature of just like me covering the class and whatnot. Um, one of these just turns out to be a very close one to my heart, if you will, um, which is the false dichotomy between religion and science. Uh, that being, I, I became a believer in that, that summer that I was talking to you uh, was also the summer before I went into pretty intense scientific training. And that was why I was really interested in apologetics first, because I, I was a believer. I was locked in. I was sort of like, okay, well, how does this work for God's truth? And it was an amazing walkthrough to understand that um, we do not need to consider the idea of um, expert, and, and for the recording, I'm doing hand quotes, which is not helpful, right? <laughs> expert truth that is at odds with God's truth. Okay, We do not need to consider this idea that someone is in such an expert in their field that they have overcome or attained more knowledge for something than God's truth reveals. So his, his point here is we have at least in some part believed that science and religion are fundamentally different and at odds. Romans 1.20, small font. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the naturalistic things in our world clearly point to a God who has eternal power, divine nature, and attributes that are invisible, a.k.a. supernatural, and that's not observable and therefore outside the field of science. They are not. Science is reasoning. It's reasoning about observable truths which by definition mean truths about natural phenomena. Religion is about all truth, which includes natural and super, supernatural. True science supports 
true religion. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We see that what can be known about God and his, worth include, and his work excuse me, include the visible and the invisible, what is able to be known by observation, that which our observational senses cannot perceive, the natural and the supernatural. We've been, we've been in small group with uh, the Mahonies for 10 years, and so when I read his notes, I totally get where Scott's going with something. Um, but I'm going to have to do it my way. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. <laughs> Scott here has a reference to thermodynamics. And he has a reference to the idea in science that you have a closed system that requires input into the system to be sustained because of entropy. Don't worry. We're not doing it. We're not going to go all the way down. But the point here is that very much in that system of understanding and thermodynamics, there is a place where you have to account for an unknown. So uh, my PhD <laughs> advisor is an uh, atheist. He, it's, it's from like 20 years ago. But he is a remarkably honest man. And so we would have conversations all the time about the idea of the Big Bang and the idea of... But how did it start? And, and how did you get all the way there to the beginning for the input in the system? Because something still had to start. And he's an honest enough man that he'd go, yeah, I, you just kind of have to have faith that that happened. <laughs> and, and I'm not setting that up as a criticism to him. I'm setting him honestly as a, as a praise to his honesty. That he is more willing to admit, I, I don't know what that is. But we do. And I'm, I'm not trying to attribute it to the Big Bang, but my point is we understand this idea of God who created something from nothing. We understand that. Do we understand that all the way to the depths of exactly what happened? Nope. No? But enough to say, God, that was definitely you. God who speaks into my life, who answers my prayers, that was you. Note how we brought, brought that back? You know what the best thing, I, I apologize if I'm almost sort of like speaking too much of myself here, um, but the best thing for me in terms of becoming a believer before going into my scientific training is that it afforded me an opportunity to worship through my scientific training. He has a reference here towards Blaise Pascal. Do people generally know who that is? Or he's... He is quite a famous um, expert in philosophy, physics, mathematics, economics. He invented the first mechanical calculator, the basis for study of probability, mathematics, and even fluid dynamics that are still used in um, hydraulics. His entire life was dedicated to becoming an expert in every field, and he pursued and he determined that all fields of expertise could only point to a sovereign, imminent, and good God. He has, um, he has a, a collection of thoughts that I, I'm pretty sure Scott is actually going to like reference and work through a little bit. It's called Pensee, which is just a horrible rendition of French that just means thoughts. Um, I said that really badly is what I'm saying there. Um, but it, it is incredibly, it's incredibly interesting to find that he is worshiping as he's going through his systematic study. He's not saying... Well, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to know. God, you made it, and then I'm going to throw my hands up in the air. He's saying, no, I'm doing a very, like, I'm doing a very thorough study of everything in front of me, understanding that, God, you are the one who is the creator and holds all these things together. The last, the, there's another section um, that I'm not going to work through, mainly because I don't, I, like I said, have the context. And then the last is a lack of reality related to the supernatural. Um, and this is where I am actually going to do a reference from the Chronicles of Narnia. So I hope that's okay with everyone, but I just, just so you know, um, there's a context for this. Our generation is overwhelmingly naturalistic. 
there's an almost complete commitment to the concept of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. This is, again, Francis Schaeffer. That's its distinguishing mark. If we're not careful, even though we say we are biblical Christians and supernaturalists, nevertheless, the naturalism of our generation tends to come upon us. Did Jesus really interact with demons? Were we sure? We are. But you see how that thought gets in there a little bit? Have you ever noticed that the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 is so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the things of the naturalistic world, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You do not want to become naturalistic in your thinking that you remove God from the system. That you forget, no, Lord, this is what you said. This is the truth of our reality. This is what we war against. I, Friday night, we went to watch Prince Caspian at the Museum of the Bible. I, mean, I had an opportunity. I took, I took Tegan down there. And um, there's a scene. So I'm not going to go spend like a whole lot of time with this. But if you're generally familiar with the stories written by C.S. Lewis, who he himself was an atheist, became a believer, and then is, was an apologist. Um, it's about a magical land, Narnia, where there are children transported through magical mechanism into this land where they themselves, their, their um, brothers and sisters, peasantsies, they themselves become kings and queens as they pursue Aslan, who is the Lion of Narnia. He is an image of Christ. C.S. Lewis is very careful to say he is not Christ because Aslan belongs to Narnia. Right? So and the reason there, don't connect too many things. We don't need to go too far in this. Why am I bringing this up? In Prince Caspian, time has passed and the children are brought back. And when they're brought back, they're in this really strange circumstance and they have to essentially interact with people. But it's been so much time removed that they were children again, but they've re returned to a land where they were kings and queens. And as they're running around, and in the play it's very, um, it's very stark when you see it. When they're running around, what they see is... Um, that they are put on this mission and they don't understand why, but they're essentially running along. And Lucy, who's the youngest, sees the lion, Aslan. And no one else sees him. And she tries to convince everybody. He's right there. And they're like, no, we can't see him. And not only that, they don't want to follow where he went. And they're saying, well, how could he be there? We didn't see him. Well, we should just go this way. This way makes more sense. And there's another character, and the character goes, well, if he was a lion, he'd probably be an old lion. He'd probably be a wild lion. He probably wouldn't be a real one. Chip, 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 chip away at what Lucy said, or saw, and knows. She refuses. She sees Aslan again. In my mind, I was reading you guys this section, but I don't think it makes sense. She sees Aslan again, and then he comes and talks to her. And she says, they're not seeing you. And he goes, essentially, he actually doesn't answer in the scene. He just looks at her. And she gets it every time. She goes, are you saying that I should have followed you anyway? Are you saying that I shouldn't have let go of you? Are you saying, are you saying? And ultimately, she understands that she needed to just follow him. And eventually the others, because she refuses to let go, she refuses to only follow him, eventually the others see him. And then he begins to do all the other things that he was always doing in the scene, which is magical and amazing and makes no sense to the logical mind. We were sitting there Friday night, and I was just, I, you know, I'd read these years ago, and I've reread them, and I was thinking about the class, and I was thinking about, well, it's, it's really interesting to me just to, to consider there is a truth that Lucy knew, and she didn't want to let go of it. And everything made sense around it. 
But not only was that true, something that she didn't want to let go of, it made the most sense. They're British children in a magical world where animals speak. Nothing makes sense unless you understand who holds the system together. Does the analogy sort of make sense? Does the illustration make sense? I don't think we need to consider any of this study as how do I fit the box of the world into God's truth? Or how do I fit God's truth into the box of the world? I think we fix our eyes upon Jesus, and we understand, nope, you're the one that made everything, so it's going to fit. What does that look like? And the study continues, how does that work? How do you control these things? Oh, that's amazing. There's a lot of freedom in this. Oh, there's a lot of truth in this. There's a lot of encouragement in this. This is something that I can share with people. So the basis for the study for this class, so Scott wrote this. He says, the elders have asked that this growing disciples class provide an introduction to the discipline of apologetics and be based on this book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, written by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Our principal goals then will be to, one, study what is true. This is always a study of God, his work, and his word. Two, to be so convinced of the truth that our lives are progressively transformed into Christ-likeness. Three, to be capable of sharing the truths that transform our lives with a lost and dying world. And four, to promote the necessity of passionate truth-seeking with excellence. I'm going to go back to 1 Peter 3, 15 and 17 for another minute. Actually, I'm still going to start in 14 again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, little confession time. I signed up for this class, like, just to attend the class. And then Scott asked me to cover the first session. Scott and I will talk about that. That's fine. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, he, i got to remember, not that many of you know me, so i got to be careful. <laughs> um, and I, I was really happy to do it, right? Because I want to walk in on Monday morning to work confident in a God who's here. And I want to interact with people in my work so fixated on who the Lord is that in every conversation or opportunity I might be able to continue to share his truth and that they would understand how it is entirely consistent with the reality before us. And they might not know and they, their, their eyes might still be darkened and they might not understand it, but it will not make it less true. And I want that to be true for when I am putting my kids to sleep who, you know, I have young boys who ask very honest and open and logical questions sometimes. I mean, not always, but, you know. But I want to give them a good answer that is connected with who they see me as at the end of the day. So that when I am worried about A, B, C, D in my life, but I'm giving them an answer as to why we can trust that God made the world, why we can trust in a Savior who saves us from our sins, that they understand that those are not separate, they're together. But I can't do it for the sake of them. I have to do it first for the sake of the Lord. And I have to do it first for my own walk with Him and my own worship first. So even as we go through this, I guess my encouragement or my hope and I, and I really like what, what Scott is calling this in terms of passionate truth-seeking, is that it would be for the Lord first. 
and that we would be so fixated on him as we do these things that we have, we have no one else that we can go to, right? That's what it is. Christ, to whom else would we go? And that's where all of it would come. Does that make sense? So, um, any last questions, comments? Go ahead. So, just like, like regarding Seth, by the way. Thanks. No worries. It's uh, like regarding like the atheists that you had when you were in like your college. Mm-hmm. It's something where we know that nothing can create everything. God made the universe. We understand all that. Something where, I, and I, I really like what you said. We focus on God and His truth. And then that get, then comforts us when we love others. We love God first, and through that we love others. Yep. I want to share the truth with people like the, let's say, the atheistic science professor and everything. I, of course, it's a, it's a scientific impossibility. Nothing created everything. There, and then it's like we don't want to go cutthroat and say, "But here's God," and we, we want to do it with love. Yeah. But it's kind of when we're speaking the truth, it, it's something where we're loving them but they won't take it the kindest way. And I'm not trying to go in like a blunt way, saying that essentially we have all fallen, This is, but he has paid our price. It's obvious. The big thing is just that it, it, that's definitely when I started to witness and so forth, it was definitely, I focused too much on people's reactions, not focusing too much on God's truth, realizing that I would try to conform. You said bend. I knew exactly what you meant. You want to kind of like bend that little bit. Not, oh, Jesus died for you, but just that little bit of bending. And I recognized, fix on this first, then go to that. My big thing is, how do I confront these people? Doing it in love. We can burn a stake, but if we don't do it in love, pointless. We want to do it in love. But, again, doing it in love, going to these people, letting them know who Jesus is. Knowing that, yes, some will turn away, but doing it the most efficient way. Because I've heard, the amount of times I've heard people say, I like to go through the back door. And it's like, how many boxes of cookies do you give to your neighbors so they're going to realize Jesus died for your sins? Mm-hmm. It's like, there is a place where you have to speak. Not in a rude way. You do it all in love. And that's probably the hardest place I've found this balance with, especially coming to Christ, wanting people to know Christ, and wanting to know His riches, His glory. But... Of course, seeing, of course, they go into complete, they, they're secularism, complete divide, all this stuff. My question is just how do I do this in love? How do I witness in love? I guess the most efficient way. If, I guess it might be just too easy of a question, but that's honestly the way that I could only phrase it. I, I think it's an excellent question, right? I, I think it. I think it speaks to what a lot of us, I think it speaks to what a lot of us try to interact with, right? And I, I think the concern even more so, if it's okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is behind the question, but I, I'll say for my own, for my own self, what happens if the fear of the interaction makes me more silent, right? What happens if then I want to say, like, maybe I'll share a little less because I don't want it to be awkward or exactly. i got to keep going, blah, blah, blah. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I don't think, I don't, I, I don't know that I'm going to give you sort of like the answer. Pastor Gibbs, right there. We can, we can just, there you are. Here we are. But here's, here's what I want to offer at, at a minimum. Um, Men love the darkness and they hate the light. And the truth of the truth of God is offensive. It is no matter how desperate we know as believers we need it, and we know that non-believers need it, no matter what, it remains offensive. And so it is going to offend. I think that there is the place for understanding and trusting in the Lord that we would offend people by his truth and his truth only and nothing else. And I guess what I mean by that is a patience, a hope fixed on Christ, a loving behavior. I'm still baking you the cookies, 
but this conversation did not go well, and you called me a bigot, and you called me a hater of people, and you called me these things, but I've seen the Lord. What am I going to do? I can't do anything else. This is truth, and this is who the Lord is. And you can listen, and for legitimate arguments and legitimate concerns that people have, or the, the, the arguments they have, you can have an answer that is loving and kind and true, but listens to them, but you don't give up. And you have patience, and you, are, you continue on. That, that's, if that's an overly simplistic answer, I don't know that I have a better one. Actually, Pastor Gabe, do you have a thought on that? I'd love to... I'm sorry. It's not fair, but you signed up for the job, so what am I going to do? their particular question or statement that they made and address what he knows mm. needed to hear. We don't have the ability to do that so much. Um, but what he does that we can do is he has a deep love for the person. And his concern is for their greater needs are different than their perceived needs. And so uh, the more that we become like Christ, that one of the ways that we become like Christ is by having a love for the person and their soul and concern for them that uh, sets aside the academic arguments that we might be tempted to engage in, um, or, or at least that engages in them in a way that's more relational and loving than, let me see if I can beat you and, and win the argument. Um, and uh, it just takes a commitment to love well uh, and love the soul, and that's going to look different for each person, for each situation. Um, and sometimes we might go away from an interaction and think like, oh, I should have said something and I didn't say it because I was fearful or whatever. Um, other times we might uh, lack love and say something we shouldn't have said or in a way that we shouldn't have said. So we're not going to be perfect at it. But if, if our aim is to love the person, uh, sometimes we'll sense by the Spirit's grace that love means I need to say a hard word or a, a, a word of truth. Uh, sometimes it means I don't need to say something. I just need to demonstrate love. And uh, so it's just we, as we trust in Him, as we pray uh, and uh, anticipate opportunities like that and ask ourselves, Lord, help me to love Lord. Lord, help me to love this person. Um, that, that's, I think, faithfulness, and the Lord wants to be faithful more than efficient. Thanks, Pastor Kim. Please. Um, my name is Karen. And um, based on what, what you were talking about, um, I think with, apo with apologetics that my experience is always the kind of leave a stone in their shoe, so to speak, you know, so I don't have to go in with this, I guess, big apologetic shotgun, you know, mm. you know Jesus Christ is the way, you know, it's, it's to do it with, you know, gentleness, and, and, and I have found that the Lord just, and the Holy Spirit just leads the conversation, you know, and, and to trust that, you know, and with apologetics, you know, for for me, it's not always to, at that moment, you know, to get them to see and they got to believe right now, because I know the Lord does that, hmm. you know. Um, but I've always been taught and I've heard, actually, there's a good book by Greg Kukul. He's a great apologist. It's called Tactics. And, um, oh, it's so good. It's really, really good. And, um, and he talks a lot about to leave a stone in their shoes so that when they have something to really think about, mm. you know. Um, I don't know, just, just, I was just thinking of that book, that tactics book, and how, how good that is that helps, 
you know, of what to say, how to say it, mm. you know, because again, we don't want to, with apologetics, we don't want to go in and just, <laughs> you know what I mean? We do want to be gentle. And, and, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit just guides us, you know, if we pray before we give an answer, you know. Yeah, on, on that point and with what Pastor Gabe had said, that, that is, that is no under, that cannot be overstated. Right. The praying for people and, and leaning on the Lord and going to him first, um, that, you know, that he would do his work, right? Because that, nevertheless. That fits that model better. Yeah. That's, that's the staying in the top model because even my apologetic evangelistic side of me recognizes that you might hang out here only right yeah yeah let's do this as last comment and then we'll pray but please um my name's krista and speaking of the model like all throughout this and originally when you were talking about the dichotomy and it 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 speaks to this as well is that the the longer i walk with christ the Mm. more i identify the areas where I have not, I've been like, oh, you know, this, this is, this is where God is. That's whatever. And the, the older I get by the grace of God, that Venn diagram is collapsing yeah. into more and more things overlap. And the more and more everything overlaps, the more I'm able to have a conversation with somebody and not have fear. Yeah. And to be able to say, oh, I I, I understand that you think that way. And even if the, the discussion goes terribly, I can show up the next day with cookies because it hasn't, it, God is in control. I can't, all I can do is speak the truth yeah. and love that person. And nothing else is in my control. Yeah. Thanks. All right, I'm going to pray and then so we can transition to corporate worship.